There's a couple of things that, uh, I, first of all, I'm abandoning my lecture, throwing it out. I'm jumping into the void just because the inspiration I've gotten this weekend has brought up a lot of things that I'm excited about and uh, was inspired by, so I'm going to lay those out there. I wanted to start with a few comments. Uh, now, I'm a, I'm a drooling bhakti, I admit it, uh, but I'm going to say a few things about Advaita that I heard because I've heard a lot of conversations about it over the weekend here, and uh, I just want to point out a couple of ideas. They're, they're ideas to be thought about, not instructions or statements of fundamental truth. Uh, one is uh, Advaita is a realization. It's not a practice. It ha- it, 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 there's no such thing as an Advaitic practice. Uh, but conversely, all practices are for Advaita, and all Advaitic practices are dualistic in their beginning. Uh, that uh, should be followed up with the understanding, too, that in Advaita, it's not God that disappears. It's you that disappears. So you're not ready to feel uncomfortable about prayer until you're feeling uncomfortable about talking to the person next to you. Because God is more real than the person next to you in that Advaitic realization. So hold on to that idea. Don't put the cart before the horse. It's a dangerous thing to do because it's, it's, it's psychologically very stimulating and very satisfying, but spiritual, spiritually speaking, it's, it's, it can be a disaster for your spiritual growth. So be careful about those things. I know, uh, especially here in the West, uh, for some reason, probably our cultural experiences were very eager to throw God away, and uh, mostly because of the misunderstandings and, and our... Uh, uh, the superstitions that Swamiji was talking about earlier when we're trying to reclaim that idea of God. So with that uh, in mind, I just kind of wanted to jump in with this idea of prayer. Uh, I read two things this morning in the gospel that were, that were quite lovely. Uh, Thakur is talking about King Janaka, and he says, King Janaka lived a householder's life only after attaining perfection through austerity and prayer. So the two things that are necessary, austerity and prayer. Uh, He follows that up shortly. It says, the master says, let me assure you. Okay, so here's the God of the universe assuring us of something. A man can realize his inner self through sincere prayer. But to the extent that he has a desire to enjoy worldly objects, his vision of self becomes obstructed. So we see that that, uh, prayer, you can go all the way to the end with prayer. Prayer is a vast idea. Uh, The notion that prayer is just a a supplication or just a conversation, that's a very young, a very youthful approach to prayer. Prayer encompasses even the enlightenment experience. It's that perfect unity. It's that perfect being, that perfect togetherness inside. Um, With that, I wanted to uh, look at a few things that two great saints, or not saints, I guess, but a great monk has said about prayer. Thomas Merton wrote extensively on it, on the idea. And he says, We will only emphasize the essential simplicity of monastic prayer in the primitive prayer of the heart, which consisted in interior recollection, the abandonment of distracting thoughts, and the humble invocation of the Lord Jesus with words from the Bible in a spirit of intense faith, 
This simple practice is considered to be of crucial importance in the monastic prayer of the Eastern Church, since the sacramental power of the name of Jesus is believed to bring the Holy Spirit into the heart of the praying monk. So we see that, that, that this prayer of the heart is an interior recollection. It's that interior recollection of divinity. You know, in the, in the beginning, of course, that divinity is separate from us. But it's a, it's, a, it's a space in mind that you create where you simply sit in the presence of that divinity, sit in the presence of that fullness, of that recognition. So to sit in this interior recollection, the abandonment of distracting thoughts. When, when Takor says, come to your own abode, O mind, leave everything else outside, that's the idea. Come into this inner shrine, come into your inner temple, and leave all the other things outside. Don't let them come in and disturb the waters. Because if the waters are not disturbed, then you can see your beloved. It, it won't be a time of imagination. It won't be a time of longing. It'll be a time of beauty, a time of fulfillment, a time of, of true enjoyment, probably the only enjoyment. The abandonment of distracting thoughts and the humble invocation of the Lord Jesus with words from the Bible. So we can broaden that out as we do as Vedantists to come in and, and it's a humble invocation. So you, 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 it's an opening. Humility is an opening, an opening to the possibility that, that, that wisdom exists in, in others besides ourselves, and an open humility that, that truth exists and perhaps we're unaware of it. It's, it's an opening to the possibilities of, of, of not knowing. It's a letting go of our assumptions, one of my favorite things to talk about, because this whole world is really just the sum of our assumptions, and, and, and there's no knowledge in that. So to learn, you have to let go of your assumptions so that void can be filled with truth, so that you can come to understand the nature of what you're going through. So he says those are the three components of this monastic prayer he's talking about because actually this book was written for monastics and then it became popular and got published elsewhere. He says here, in, in regards to the value of this prayer, he says because some people, even last night I heard the, the conversation happen about the, the ascetic monks in that movie. Uh, oh, but where is their service to humanity? Isn't that a, a selfish thing for them to go up into the mountains by themselves. That is such a dangerous thought, such a dangerous thought, because they are the very battery of spirituality in this whole world. Because where do people who want to know go? They go to that man. And who are the people that would go into those mountains? Somebody who's very committed, somebody who's, who's, who's really clear on the importance of the teachings that are going to come to him through these ascetics in the mountains. And then after they go and they get themselves filled up, where do they come? They come back to the rest of us. And what do they do? They make a movie. <laughs> they teach a class. They write a book. You know, they fill us up. So those men, even this morning, even last night, are directly affecting our spirituality, have directly given us a gift, given us a treasure, just by the mere fact that they exist, that I could sit and watch that movie last night and cheer for somebody who has given it all to do this, who has walked away from everything, not in a word, not in a, not in a book, not in an idea, 
but have walked out the door and walked into the mountains with nothing to find God and didn't come back because they were sorry or because they didn't find it, but stayed because they found enough to make it the very process a treasure. The very process put a light in their eyes, put a clarity in their vision, made an inspiration of their life. And that is our prayer. Your prayer is never a selfish undertaking. No matter what you're praying for, if you're praying for your own enlightenment, beautiful. If you're praying for your own health and your own happiness, beautiful. Certainly as a happy and healthy person, you will be a gift to the world. Your prayer is never a selfish act. Becoming, becoming more divine is never a self-focused endeavor. And enlightenment itself is what? It's realizing that there was no little self to serve. So it automatically makes you the very definition of selfless. It makes you the very definition of servant, of lover, of giver, of compassion itself. So not to think that way. In this regard, he was saying, I took the thing out of the book. There it is. This is precisely the monk's chief service to the world. This silence, this listening, this questioning, this humble and courageous exposure to what the world ignores about itself, both good and evil. If in the latter part of this study we speak frequently of the concept of dread, it will be in this existential sense. That's not the important part. (laughs) The important part is that this silence, this listening, these are qualities of prayer. When you sit down to pray to God, you talk in the beginning to get that stuff out of the way. You talk in the beginning to develop that relationship. You know, I see it's, it's, like, it's like a marriage. It is a marriage. It's a, it is a marriage, you and, and the divine. To sit there, and in the beginning of the relationship, when you're first dating, you're going out, you talk about mundane things. You, the important thing is, God forbid, don't let there be any silence in that first conversation on, the fir- <laughs> on that first date. Nothing worse, nothing, nothing fails a date faster than silence on the first date. So in the beginning, you talk with the divine. You address the divine. And Takor says, even if you don't believe in God, that's not even the point. If you don't believe in God, he says, well, start your prayer saying, God, I'm not really sure I believe in you. Not really sure you exist. But you know, if you do, this is what's on my mind. This is what's in my heart. And go forward from there. Because he says, if you start even there, just even with that beginning, you can go home. You can find the beloved. You can find the divine. And it may be very surprising in what form that manifests. But be open to any and everything. So prayer is that openness. So in that relationship, it goes on. After you've been married for four or five years, you're not so much talking about the daily events, maybe. You're you're not so much inquiring about each other's likes and dislikes. And then I saw a most lovely thing at a table uh, uh, at a museum, actually, in the cafe. I saw a very old couple. And they were sitting there... She had her hand on the table like this, and he had his hand um, from the opposite side on top of her hand. And they sat there, and they were eating their food. Nothing was being said. There was no conversation being had because they already knew. The person only had to raise their eyebrow, and the other person would (laughs) nod their head. (laughs) You know, The familiarity was so deep, and the familiarity was, was so practiced after so much time together. That's mature prayer. That's mature prayer. When you just close your eyes, you have nothing to ask, nothing to say, but you just want to be with your beloved, to be with the divine. And because of all the conversation you've shared in the past, 
because of all the things you've asked for, because of all the desires you've betrayed, because of all the problems that you've opened up about and that you've talked about, and all the experience of life that has betrayed the answers of God to you, both yes and no, if you break them up that way, that walk that is all encompassed in that silence. And you sit there, it's a pregnant silence. It's that darkness of the soul that St. John talks about, not in the sense of darkness in the sense of misery. St. John says that when he said the darkness of the night, the night, the dark night of the soul, that he wasn't talking about that misery, that suffering. We often say it that way, and he does refer to it earlier in that light. But he says the dark, the, the dark night of the soul is the darkness of space. He says space is full of light. Look at the billions of stars emanating light. But it appears dark. Why? Because there's not an other to reflect it back. That silence of prayer is when your humility has become so complete, when your understanding of the magnificence of the divinity within yourself is so full that there's no smaller self anymore to reflect it back. You're simply absorbed. You take it in. Take it in. You become that black piece of cloth that doesn't discard any color, absorbs all the colors, absorbs all that divinity. So that's where this silence comes from that he's speaking of here. This silence this listening and anticipation in that, in that presence. Every moment with the divine is infinite. You will never know what's going to happen next. You have no idea where God can come from or in what way he's going to touch you or in what way something is going to manifest within you. So there's this eager listening, this attentiveness, even in that silence, even in that fullness, just that, f- that, that full focus on the beloved. He says this questioning, this humble and courageous exposure to what the world ignores about itself, it's a complete surrender to the divine. Mature prayer, there's no fear anymore. Perfect love casts out fear. In the beginning, all of our spiritual lives began in fear. Oh, I hope God doesn't punish me. <laughs> you know, oh God, don't do that. You know, don't do that to me. Don't humiliate me during my lecture. <laughs> you know? Oh, please, please, don't humiliate me in my lecture. You know, in the beginning, there's lots of fear, lots of fear with God. And that's reflected in the Garden of Eden, right? When af- right after Adam and Eve both take that bite of the forbidden fruit, they hear God walking in the cool of the day, it says. And what do they do? They run and hide. Uh, they run and hide. And much of our life, the worldly life, becomes running and hiding because we don't have that vulnerability. We don't have that trust in the divine. So prayer is about restoring that trust. How different this world would be if Adam and Eve had run to God when they heard him and fallen down and said, oh my God, you, you won't believe how I got deceived and what happened to me. You won't believe it. How different it would have turned out, you know. And how different we become when we reach that point in our life where we stop trying to take refuge in outside things. You know, when we don't have to have that drink to relax. When we don't have to have that dinner party to feel loved, you know, when we don't have to go to the movies to do away with the loneliness, when instead we've built that inner chamber of prayer, that inner relationship with the beloved, so that becomes our only refuge, the only thing we need. Because the beautiful thing about God as refuge is that he fixes the problem. The problem in that open honesty, that open attentive listening, that open attentive questioning, 
that presence of absolute trust. It heals. It takes care of what's going wrong in your life. That's why he says again and again, take me as your only refuge. Because all of the other refuges that we have, those dinner parties, those movies, those glasses of beer after work or whatever it is, the, the type of refuge that they offer is a refuge of distraction. When that time together ends, you come back to the same problem. No new insights, no new help, no little moving farther along the path. You're in the same place. And if that pain is too much and you still insist on hiding, it turns into an addiction. Your refuge becomes an addiction and not a refuge anymore. But in the divine, he becomes the solution. He becomes the inspiration. He becomes love incarnate. He becomes absolute trust. That is the service of us as spiritual people to the world. That's why our time with the beloved is not selfish, because it allows and it empowers and informs every act of service that will come out of this place, every act of service, because it will make it authentic. It will make it real. It will come from a place of realization and not a place of imitation. That you'll care because you'll see the divine in the other soul. You'll feel the pain as you recognize your oneness. And service is a natural response to that, not a practiced response to that. So this is the idea of prayer, he says, to be willing to go into that place. He says, cultivate an attitude, an outlook, faith, openness, attention, reverence, expectation, supplication, trust, joy. All these finally permeate our being with love insofar as our living faith tells us we are in the presence of God, that we live in Christ, that in the spirit of God we see God without seeing. We know him in unknowing. Faith is the bond that unites us to him in the spirit who gives us light and gives us love. The boundaries of this room that you have in your heart, this place that you go and that you sit with the divine. It expands. It grows. And what happens when it grows is the idea of inside and outside goes away. This outer world becomes a continuation of your prayer. There's a great uh, story, um, that, that book, uh, The Way of the Pilgrim, where he reads in First Thessalonians in the New Testament that one should pray without ceasing. And so he goes to find out, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Ultimately, what it means to to pray without ceasing is to become conscious of the fact that your life is a prayer, that every action you take is a prayer. Everything you listen to is a prayer. Everything you eat is a prayer. And everything that comes of that is the answer to your prayer. So if you go to work and you work hard, that's a prayer to be successful in your job. And when that money comes in, that's an answer to the prayer. That's what you get for making for making that supplication. When you when you love your family, the love that you get in return from that, the appreciation that comes back in that, that's the return on that prayer. But everything that you do is a prayer, and to be conscious of that is to understand First Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. Become aware, become careful about the way that you live. Become careful about the things that you pray for. Become conscious of them and understand that karma is just another word for an answered prayer. To live in that space. So this prayer goes on. 
He says one, one cannot begin to face the real difficulties of life, of prayer and meditation, unless one is perfectly content to be a beginner and really experience himself as one who knows little or nothing and has a desperate need to learn the bare rudiments. Those who think they know from the beginning will never, in fact, come to know anything. <laughs> That's one of the dangers. That's the, that, uh, I can go back and pick up that thread from the beginning about Advaita Vedanta. If we talk about Advaita as if it's something that can be known, we've made a wrong assumption from the very beginning because you cannot know one without a second. There is not n- no knower. There's no knowing. <laughs> and there's no known. There's, I mean, the triad has collapsed. And so to, to, to open up to our experience, to accept where we're at, to, to accept this is, this is what I think I am, this, this is what I think is going on, and to be able to approach the divine from that perspective, to go into your meditation and sit in the presence of God and say, I have no idea what's going on. You know, I have no idea. There's times when my mind has gotten so filthy and so messed up and so full of noise that I've taken it in prayer and I've sat there and I've put it in the palm of my hand and I said, look at this. Look at what I have to live with. I'm like, Ma, you would have done the exact same thing if you were looking through this thing. I'm blameless. I'm ever free. I'm ever pure. Don't let me forget it, Ma. You would have done the same thing. As in fact, you did do the same thing because, right? We're one, right? So you did the same thing looking through this. So we've got a common problem. We've got a common problem. Your mind and the condition of your life is not between you and God. You and God are looking together at your life. You don't have to clean it up in order to share your life with God. Share your life with God and it will clean up. It will purify itself. You know, have that consciousness. Spend that time in prayer. Follow that line to its finish. The last thing from our man, Mr. Merton. The desert father Amonas, a disciple of St. Anthony, said, Behold, my beloved, I have shown you the power of silence how thoroughly it heals and how fully pleasing it is to God. Wherefore, I have written to you to show yourself strong in this work you have undertaken so that you may know that it is by silence that the saints grew, that it was because of silence that the power of God dwelt in them, and because of silence that the mysteries of God were known to them. Why is that? Why would he say that? Because that which is self-apparent, doesn't make a noise, doesn't inflict itself on others, doesn't jump up and down and get attention, has no needs. That silence within you will allow that which is self-evident to be obvious to you. You will find that it's all the noise of your mind, all the talking and questioning and yelling and you know, upsetting and <laughs> all of those things, that it's this dialogue that has created the blindness that you're trying to heal. So that silence is a very powerful thing. Why? Not because it's empty, but because it's full of the divine. Silence is full of contentment. 
Silence is full of love. Silence is full of patience. Silence is full of service. In that movie last night, when that man, when that that uh, recluse was, you know, <laughs> doing what must have been very hard work, pointing at that whole field, and he says, uh, he says, when you work, just work. Don't sit there and think this and that and all the other. Just, just work. He says, and through, and he said, through the silence, all of this can be accomplished. And they panned out, and they had that whole field there. So to have that kind of view, that's the essence of karma yoga in prayer, actually, right there, is to simply have what's before you be the thing that is before you. Take it. And what will make it worship? By having the presence of God in your mind. Because the natural response to the presence of God is worship. To sit there in silence with only what is before you done, with the presence of your beloved, everything becomes a gift. Everything becomes handing over. Everything becomes a surrendering. And huge things are accomplished. Look at Swamiji. Look at Thakur. One of my favorite meditations about Thakur was, was when I realized here was a man who really, and I'm, I'm just going to talk in worldly terms, who really accomplished nothing. <laughs> he, 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 was just, he was just a regular guy, not much education, so you could call him dumb. Some stupid guy. I'm stepping out, but I'm stepping out because I, I I know that that, that Vivekananda he, he gives permission when he refers to Thakur as that old man and his wife <laughs> in his lecture. So it's in that sphere. I'm I'm playing with this, even though I don't have that kind of relationship with him. He'll forgive me. But this notion that there here he lived such an ordinary life. His job was to be a, a temple priest at a temple that wasn't really even fully accepted by the, the by the Orthodox on the side of the bank of the Ganga. You know, he got some money for it. He had a wife. A lot of people considered him to be kind of nutty, kind of crazy. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't start a publication. He didn't put anything on a billboard out front. He didn't make any promotional calls. <laughs> he really did nothing. He just kind of hung on from day to day. What made him special? He saw the divine. Because he, he had that interior space. He had that interior relationship. And that interior relationship couldn't be contained. It couldn't be contained in the mundane. It couldn't hide behind the ordinary. It was beautiful. It was so beautiful that his name is going to be remembered and going to be sung for the next 2,000 years. From an ordinary life. From really a life that is just as mundane as yours or mine. Just as ordinary as ours. And the thing that will make us incredible is not the doing of incredible things, but the seeing of that incredible self, that knowledge of that divinity that is our jewel, like that woman said last night. You have a jewel, and you have a jewel, and you have a jewel, and you too have a jewel. To find that jewel makes your life amazing, will make your life the biggest accomplishment that the world has ever seen. It's not the doing and saying of things. It's the being with the one, the sitting in that silence, aware, pregnant in questioning, fully open, fully willing to take anything that comes, understanding that that manifests in this world as your prayer. There is no fear in perfect love. 
in that attitude, you understand that every bit of trouble and every bit of suffering that comes your way is an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for insight, for you to look for the love that is motivating that activity toward you by your beloved, because he would never do something to you for the sole purpose of hurting. It's always to take you higher, to take you farther. So to sit in that space, that's all the time I have. I was going to go through some of the things of, uh, of Brother Lawrence because he became a saint by sitting in that silence. He also had a very ordinary life. He was a cook in a monastery. By all rights, we should never even have heard his name. And yet we do, and there's books written about him, not about his cooking. <laughs> you know, Books written about him because he spent time with the beloved, with the divine. And when you spend time, like the master says, sitting close to sandalwood, you begin to smell like sandalwood. So it's not that Brother Lawrence was an incredible Brother Lawrence. He was just a regular guy who cooked, who spent a lot of time rubbing up against sandalwood. He knew God, loved God, was inspired by God, and in turn became a saint. So take that prayer. <laughs> Live that prayer. That's the point of prayer. And by the promise of the beloved Takor, it will take you all the way to the goal. Don't abandon it.